Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. As we talk about, you know, the future of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, we talk about the future of the Coastal Gasoline Pipeline. Uh, A lot of these conversations inherently involve First Nations. We hear a lot about the First Nations that oppose these projects. Maybe we don't hear enough about the First Nations that support these projects, that see opportunity for economic development as a result of these projects and the partnerships that they've negotiated with the companies looking to build these projects. So to that end, it's a very timely book release today from the Fraser Institute, and it helps illustrate why this matters. It's probably fair to say that we all have a vested interest in First Nations succeeding and thriving. And there are certainly examples of that. As the book details, First Nations that focus on developing businesses in the broad economy enjoy higher living standards compared to those that end up relying more heavily on government transfers and court settlements. So participating in the economy, generating wealth, that obviously benefits those communities. Well, joining us to talk more about this research and what the implications are. Very pleased to welcome the program the author of The Wealth of First Nations, uh, Tom Flanagan, a retired professor of political science at the University of Calgary, senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. Professor Flanagan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, hi, Rob. Uh, I mean, how, how relevant is all of this then in, in the debate around the energy projects and, and how First Nations potentially stand to benefit? Well, I think it's very relevant. Um... There are some First Nations who have tried to obstruct, uh, well, almost every pipeline that's been proposed recently has had some First Nations opponents. But in fact, the number opposing is, uh, it appears, uh, much smaller than the number of First Nations that would actually like to see these pipelines built. Uh, that includes both the First Nations who are on the pipeline route who will benefit from uh, collecting tolls, and they have impact benefit agreements. Um, we're talking, you know, tens of millions of dollars to the First Nation over a period of time for participating in the pipeline. But then also even more First Nations who are upstream uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan who's um, involved in producing oil and gas in those provinces, and they're being deprived of their best markets if the pipelines can't be built. So there are many, many First Nations that want to increase their share of the action, and uh, it's really quite a tragedy that they're being frustrated. Right, and I think that's part of the problem here, that even if a First Nation aspires uh, to, to develop in that sense, that sometimes you know, they're encountering these same kind of barriers that other communities are, that there's only so much you can do if, if there are roadblocks to, to this kind of development. Yeah, well, it's... Um there's a couple of problems here that have to be faced. One is that uh, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on the duty to consult has developed um, around individual projects. And it works okay if you have, say, a particular uh, drilling program in an oil field or a seismic uh, line or you want to have a mine and you can consult with one or two First Nations that are right there. But when you have long corridor projects, uh, you're talking dozens of territories that get crossed. And, of course, the pipeline's no good unless it can go the whole way. Yeah. And uh, Supreme Court's jurisprudence has never dealt with this problem 
in the in the larger economy, the way that's dealt with is is through expropriation. Um, provincial governments have the or the federal government in their territories have the right to either expropriate the land or to get an easement to cross it. But uh, that kind of law hasn't been developed in the same way for First Nations claims. So there's a an unfortunate uh, legal snafu here that uh, that has to be clarified. It, in present state, it allows a few. First Nations, who may have, uh, I'm, not, I'm not condemning their reasoning, they may have good reasons for not wanting the pipeline, but, uh, you know, in the real world, we don't allow one or two actors to hold up something that would benefit dozens or hundreds. We find a way of compensating uh, the, the actor whose claim might be, uh, who, whose interest might be damaged. So that's what's missing here is a balancing mechanism for compensation to allow the majority to go forward. Yeah. Well, let's take a step back here because, uh, you know, this is a book basically that, that's about evidence, about what works and what doesn't when it comes to higher standards of living for First Nations communities. So what kind of evidence do we have to draw upon? Well, yeah, that's a good point. It's an evidence-based book. Um, I'm not taking a position of what's good or bad. I'm saying that uh, here's what the evidence is if you want higher standard of living for First Nations so the First Nations themselves are the experts. I look at what those who have achieved higher standards of living are doing. So this, the measuring stick is something called the um, Community Well-Being Index, which is computed every five years based on uh, Statistics Canada data about uh, income, employment, housing, and education. So it's a pretty good yardstick for how good life is um, in a material sense on a reserve. So you've got a yardstick. You can measure the hundreds of First Nations, where they stand on that, and then you can look for factors that are associated with higher higher performance. And it turns out that there's a number of things you can definitely say statistically are associated. Um, for example, um, running a tight ship with your government, staying out of debt, um, keeping payment of chief and council within reasonable bounds, um, earning own source revenue by taking advantage of opportunities, uh, economic opportunities, using what I call the off-ramps from the Indian Act. There are, in fact, some ways out of the control that the department exercises over First Nations. Um, there's the First Nations Land Management Act, which allows First Nations, once they get through that, to uh, make decisions for their own banned land. Or there are... Uh, there's a, a, a way of First Nations to be able to create their own tax systems and uh, generate tax revenue for themselves or activities on their land. Um, there are certificates of possession, which are individual forms of, of property right under the Indian Act, which are strongly associated with better housing. Uh, so there's, there's lots of things that um, we can see work, apparently. Uh, these are the things that First Nations are doing who have a higher standard of living. Then you can test um, things that don't seem to work. Uh, and, for example, uh, just transfers of money, um, the specific claims process, which is based on uh, allegations that treaty rights or land administration hasn't been properly done. Um, close to $6 million, excuse me, $6 billion has been transferred under this program. But... Um, the First Nations that have received this money are not any better off in terms of the Community Well-Being Index. And I, I cut this one up every way I could looking for signs of progress. I just couldn't find it. 
Um, Anyway, there's there's another there's like it's a book, right? So there's about ten chapters, and each chapter focuses on a different area. Uh, but this is an, these are examples of the kinds of things I was looking for. Is what's associated with a higher score and what is not, and the things that are associated are all along the lines of um, uh, First Nations entrepreneurship and better governance, business like uh, business like government. Because, I mean, it, it seems overly broad to, to boil it all down to two categories, those who pursue economic development versus those who, who prefer or, or choose to rely on, on government transfers. Uh, I mean, is, is it fair to break it down that way? I mean, how do we quantify the extent to which First Nations are trying to pursue economic development opportunities? Well, it's a matter of degree. Um, all First Nations will continue to receive some transfers. Um, they are, for all practical purposes, like municipalities that are supervised by the federal government rather than provinces. And all the municipalities in Alberta receive various grants and uh, transfers from the province. So the same is true of First Nations. But there are some first, at the low end, there are some First Nations whose revenue will be, you know, 90% in the form of transfers. And then there are other First Nations who are generating... 90% of their own revenue through business activities, and the transfers are very small in comparison. They still get some, but they're very small in comparison to what they're doing for themselves. So the challenge is to get yourself up higher on that scale. There will always be certain transfers, uh, for, and there's good reasons for them. Uh, and they're not evil in themselves. Um, but the thing is to uh, uh, start generating revenue in addition to those transfers. So it's a matter of degree. In terms of equality of opportunity, I guess, to put it, uh, put it that way, because for some First Nations, uh, there's a circumstance. Uh, for example, there's a few First Nations that are close to Calgary, close to Banff, that have the opportunity, as you know, to uh, capitalize on tourism opportunities. Uh, there are First Nations that, that happen to be along the routes of, of pipelines, and they've got the opportunity to negotiate those agreements. So th those, op or those opportunities, in, in large part, can depend on, on circumstance, can't they? That's right, and it's going to be easier for some than for others. The data clearly show that being um, next to a, a city or a town is, is an advantage. There's lots of things that you can do uh, if you're close to a city or a town. You can develop your reserve real estate, for example, for residential or commercial or industrial purposes. Um, if you're near a, a resource play, that might lead to uh, a mutual benefit agreement with the company for uh, you know a pipeline or a mine or a an oil play. Um, and yes, there probably are going to be some First Nations that don't have much in the way of opportunity, which is which is sad. So maybe maybe this approach isn't going to work for everybody. Mm -hmm. But I think it's going to be helpful for a great many because Canada, you know, it's a big country. Um, there are lots of uh, First Nations that are reasonably close to towns and cities. And then we are a country, at least we used to be, of exploitation of our natural resources. Now, some of our governments are doing their best to shut that down. But, uh, you know, when you, when you put together oil and gas and hard rock mining and lumbering and uh, agriculture and fisheries, uh, there, there's, uh, you know, very numerous opportunities across the country, and most First Nations are going to be close to something. 
Right. And there's going to be some kind of opportunity. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be easier for some than others, and I spent some time in the book going into those factors that aren't under anybody's direct control that, may, you know, may make it easier for some than others. But the evidence suggests that uh, whether, the, the, whether the opportunities are greater or less, uh, it's, it's still worth trying to take advantage of them. And, and there are examples, and that's something else you talk about in the book, are these, these success stories that we can point to as further evidence of this. Yeah, there are specific success stories which deserve to be well-known, like the Fort Mackay First Nation in northern Alberta, which has become very well-off. It's never produced a drop of oil, uh, but it's set up businesses that sell services to the oil sands industries. Yeah. And uh, there's um, the Osoyoos um, First Nation in British Columbia, which uh, uh, started, you might call it specialty agriculture, growing grapes and uh, selling the grape products to the wine industry, and then they've got their own uh, winemaking, and now they've opened up, um, you know, they've gotten into the tourist industry, taking advantage of climate and location. So, um, or there's the, uh, near Saskatoon, the white cap Sioux uh, that are within short driving distance of Saskatoon, and they've gone into hospitality in a big way with hotels and restaurants and golf courses and a casino, uh, and they're doing very well. So there's, you know, there's lots of inspiring uh, stories to look at, and uh, you know, they're all the same in the sense that they are all involve uh, entrepreneurship and um, uh, sort of a stable, long-term leadership taking advantage of whatever opportunities they have. But then each one is different because it's always local circumstances. So in one place it's tourism, in another place it's the development of. Uh, of a natural resource in another place it might be uh, um, a real estate development for uh, residential and commercial purposes if particularly if you're in a big metropolitan area so each one is uh, each one is different but they're all the same in their general approach to uh, taking the initiative to improve themselves i guess i'd also want to emphasize that uh, you know none of these improvements are really taking place because somebody from the government came out and and uh, told them what to do. <laughs> These are people who are trying to get out from underneath uh, the hand of government. Um, and they have figured this out for themselves. And uh, so I'm not really offering advice to First Nations. What I'm doing is trying to tabulate their achievements so that uh, these are better recognized, and you know, then maybe that will inspire some other First Nations to go down that same path. But you know, it's not my advice. It's rather looking to see what First Nations are doing for themselves that seems to be associated with achieving a higher standard of living. Well, it's called the Wealth of First Nations. Uh, much more at FraserInstitute.org. Tom Flanagan, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.